Ginger Lerner Wren thought she knew what she was getting into. In 1996, she ran as a candidate for judgeship in Broward County, Florida. After being elected, she thought she knew what she was getting into, being a judge in the criminal division. What she didn't know is that six months into her tenure, she would be asked to take on an additional part-time role of presiding over the first mental health court in the United States. One of the reasons this court was created is studies showing that one in six inmates has a diagnosable mental illness. Many of these inmates could have potentially found a different path other than prison if um, mental health courts were more widely available. They don't work for everyone. They're not appropriate for all crimes, but they are much more widely applicable than is currently in use. And part of what fascinates me about Judge Lerner Wren's perspective is that for more than two decades, she's had extensive experience as a judge, both in the traditional criminal court system and in this much newer experiment in uh, therapeutic jurisprudence. So really every day she's been doing both of those things. And here at the outset, allow me to be clear that I don't want to unfairly paint traditional criminal courts with too broad a brush as only concerned with punishing criminals. I think there are many well-intended people who are part of various aspects, of course, of the um, criminal court system. At the same time, I do want to highlight the difference it can make to cultivate a therapeutic approach that prioritizes attempts to be helpful, healing, even curative of defendants. It's also important to emphasize that the mental health court continues to balance attempts to help defendants with the needs to protect the public. But a profound reorientation can take place for all concerned when focus shifts from short-term punishment. You know, what was the crime? What's the punishment? We just need to um, retaliate to long-term wellness. In the judge's words, for the first time in the United States, a specialized problem-solving court was dedicated to the decriminalization of people with mental health problems when appropriate, and to use the court process to link individuals with community-based mental health care from a recovery-oriented perspective. And looking back over the past 20 years, Judge Lerner Wren has collected some of her most moving and memorable stories in a book titled A Court of Refuge. It was published last year by the UUA's own Beacon Press. You can certainly read that book if you want to see many of the stories she's collected. And reading these accounts, there were multiple times when I could understand you hearing some of what had happened, the traditional impulse to just ascertain if a person is guilty of one or more crimes, and then what punishment might best fit it. But through the therapeutic process, you begin to see this messy, complicated, many-layered humanity of everyone that quickly became evident. Uh, some of, have any of you read the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson? I know quite a few of you had or maybe seen him speak. If you ever get a chance to see him speak, please do. Uh, but he, one of the uh, real pull quotes from that book is that, All of us are more than the worst thing we've ever done, right? All of us are more than the worst thing we've ever done. And as people's stories and backgrounds emerged, I could almost hear people thinking about a person they had perceived as just a criminal. I could almost hear them thinking, oh, great, now I have to care about this person as a human being, right? (laughs) How inconvenient. No. 
Um, that kind of shift, in all seriousness, begins to get to the heart of the matter. Everything changes if you begin to experience a person as a human being, a complex, messy human being like yourself with hopes and dreams, with um, trauma as well as triumphs, as opposed to seeing someone just as an object, as a criminal, as an inmate, as a number. Let me tell you a bit more about what that looks like in practice. The difference starts with little things like the tone set to begin a court session. I suspect most of us can imagine that classic bailiff pronouncement. All rise. The court of Broward County is in session. The Honorable um, Ginger Lerner Wren presiding. Then everyone remains standing as the judge enters and is seated. In contrast, Judge Lerner Wren took to saying herself, everyone's seated. She would just say, welcome to mental health court. In her words, that informality became important. That phrase, welcome to mental health court, it helped set the tone for a courtroom culture where human dignity, therapeutic justice, and the rule of law were all important, all coexisted. And instead of the typically um, adversarial court proceeding focused on ascertaining guilt or innocence related to a specific charge, she found it helpful to begin exploring what's the context here, what's the history, how did we get to this point? And she would begin with just basic questions instead of, you know, where were you on Tuesday the 30th, you know, at 2 p.m.? She would start with, what did you want to be when you were young? What were your dreams? Did you go to school? What are your strengths? What do you do well? What's your vision for your life? She was interested to discover over the years through such open dialogues and courts that most of the people who were referred to her mental health court were high school graduates. They had attended or graduated from college and were working or had worked prior to their illness becoming um, exacerbated. These crucial pieces of people's stories helped her collaborate with them to discern potential ways forward that might otherwise have been missed. Much work, of course, remains to be done to make restorative justice, problem-solving, and person-centered approaches more commonplace, but there are some reasons for hope. More than two decades ago, in 1997, when Judge Lerner Wren was helping guide this first mental health court of the United States, she was the only one. Fast forward to 2012, which is the latest accounting I've seen, and according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, there are 3,052 total problem-solving courts in the U.S. The most common type of problem-solving courts are drug courts. They're um, 44% of the 3,000. Mental health courts are 11% of the 3,000. So that means there are at least 334 other mental health courts across this country, and hopefully more to come. But mental health courts and humane approaches to mental health in general, that's only one example of the larger movement that we need in this country to bring our society more in line with what our UU First Principle as well as the UN Declaration of Human Rights calls the inherent worth and dignity of every person, right, without exception. In Judge Lerner Wren's words, the rejection of stigma in favor of dignity is the essence of social justice. The rejection of stigma in favor of dignity is the essence of social justice. And so the question becomes for each of us, 
What can I do? What can you do? What can we do within our different and various spheres of influence? We all have different places where we have power that we can leverage to create change. What can each of us do to create a world in which each human being can live a life of dignity? I cannot here adequately describe the struggle of living with symptomatic mental illness. However, I can cogently discuss individuals who have positively influenced my recovery. I could call them my Judge Ginger Learner Wrens. This morning I will describe just a few of them. I grew up pretty normally in Westchester, New York, but I deteriorated mentally and emotionally starting at about the age of 15. By 12th grade, I was psychotic, depressed, and dangerous to myself. I entered a private long-term psychiatric hospital where I lived for seven months without improvement. In June of 1982, based on past overachievement and some in-hospital tutoring, I graduated ninth in my high school class. I transferred the next day to a short-term hospital under the care of a new psychiatrist hired by my parents. Dr. K would be my physician for the next 25 years and bring me to some sanity. I will always be grateful for the, his perseverance in the face of my illness. Dr. K prescribed a basic antipsychotic and guided me through a few short-term hospitalizations. My last was over in June of 83, engendered by several weeks of mania and a suicide attempt and by last, I mean last, I can't foresee the future, but since 1983, I have stayed out of the hospital. Three tools have been essential in avoiding hospitalization. First, Dr. K and I developed that portion of my brain, the observing ego, it's like a little Yoda guy here, that knows what is real and what is not. Second, he taught me how to dose myself with antipsychotic and anti-anxiety medication as necessary. Third, I am practical and straightforward with my professionals. So any of the many times I have thought I wanted to give up and check in, I just imagine trying to get back on my feet after such a respite, and ultimately I persevere with these three tools. Looking back, Staying removed from recidivism has been a triumph. Life was a struggle. Dr. K said, I had a lot of psychic pain, which he told my mom and dad was worse than physical pain. Some of the symptoms I have faced when fully medicated are, fully medicated are, I think people are angry at me, I think people are talking about me, I experience anger impulses. I describe my whole being with the, this phrase, everything is dark, and I just don't get along. I was also eating disordered for 30-plus years. I had a flat affect and few social graces. In my past, I was often convinced I had no friends. However... Dr. K never gave me a break, and I made some good choices. I progressed through school, 
held jobs, and even improved my employment standing. I married a mature and smart spouse. I let mistakes become teaching moments, and I stayed with Dr. K, demanding as he was, as long as I was in New York. In 1995, I met Dolores. I joined her flock at her weekly Recovery Incorporated meeting, which imbued us with the cognitive behavioral training of Dr. Abraham Lowe. I helped with snacks and counted the free will offering. I loved learning aphorisms from the program and took about 200 to heart and into my observing ego. The brain training improved my quality of life. I eventually ran my own meeting and I became Westchester area leader in 2006. However, in 2007, my husband Rick and I moved to Frederick, Maryland. I'd like to relate an anecdote. Pre-recovery success, Recovery Inc. success, Dr. K once asked how the program was going. And I said, it's not much fun. His response, it's not supposed to be fun. <laughs> After that, I worked hard to make the recovery program worthwhile. I let it change my life. Dolores passed away in 2010, and I miss her very much. I've been working with an effective therapist and psychiatrist team in Frederick for more than 10 years. They work in the same office, and they communicate. By the end of 2017, my therapist had seen me grow and stated, you're not mentally ill anymore. Indeed, now my problems are living problems and not sick problems. I'm even currently over my eating disorder for the last six years, although I accept that I am subject to relapse at any time. Dr. K happened to specialize in eating disorders. However, despite all the pain I endured from the self-hatred along with overeating, undereating, overexercising, and other purges, the best prognosis he ever gave me for getting over the food issues was vague. I eventually discovered an eating disorders program that has worked for me. And my sponsors in the program have been wise and knowledgeable friends who have helped me surmount my food issues. A member of UUCF since 2008, I have ultimately, with improved mental health, found a level of participation that works for me. And y'all are my tribe. <laughs> I am grateful for the opportunity to know all of you. I haven't broken the law and required the therapeutic jurisprudence we've heard about that Judge Ginger Lerner Wren spearheaded, but certain people in my life have made a titanic difference the few I've mentioned having been just the tip of the iceberg. The last coherent statement I heard from my late mother last May was, Susie, I'm so glad you're happy. What a gift. And when I recently told my dad that my therapist considers me mentally 
healthy, he was overjoyed. Hard times have led to good times and good memories. This is a good memory. Thanks, everyone. My favorite reassuring quote on mental illness comes from Willie Nelson, who says, if you ain't crazy, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) I agree. Seven years ago, I was officially diagnosed with a mental health challenge called a mood disorder. That was also the year I found this wonderful congregation. We folks on the broad mood disorder spectrum, ranging from cyclothymia to severe bipolar disorder, are sometimes advised by the mental health community not to name our particular diagnosis because other people sometimes make assumptions about such labels, false assumptions. And no two of us struggle alike. For instance, you've all seen Psycho, right? That's not me. (laughs) Well, not yet, anyway. (laughs) My mom had severe health issues, and my Army Colonel dad had PTSD. So I was buttoned down early and firmly. I grew up behaving myself. I never learned to act out or scream or even cry. I am no drama mama. People often say, oh, you seem so calm. On the inside, sometimes it's messier. I actually have to tap my husband on the shoulder and tell him when I'm in one of my moods. Not that kind of mood. Men always get that. (laughs) Those signals. I got my diagnosis the way many others do. Feeling confused and scared, I sought help. Over time, my psychop over five years of weekly less, uh, um, meetings, my psychologist figured out that my behavior roughly matched a list of symptoms. I was concerned at first, you know, about being labeled, but I've benefited greatly from my meds and my counseling. And I recommend my present therapist, Ethan Bliss. I've also benefited from reading wildly, uh, wildly, widely about my pretty accurate diagnosis. My wonderful psychiatrist, Andrew Johnson, agreed to start me out on the lowest possible dose of lithium, a naturally occurring mineral salt that's found in hot springs and has been used for mental health for centuries. 
I've continued successfully on a low, on that same <clears throat> low lithium dosage for seven years. <clears throat> Some folks hospitalized during a mental breakdown preventatively are overdosed on lithium. So later they go off their meds, which is too bad. Solid research over 50 years has shown lithium is successful in regulating moods with few, although some, side effects. Sadly, because lithium only costs a nickel a pill, it has been deliberately, thoroughly, and very harmfully stigmatized throughout all the media. I was encouraged to open my mind to trying lithium by a highly functional, charming, unselfish, and courageous professional friend, actually an acquaintance at the time, who trusted me with his own private information that he'd been taking lithium successfully for over 20 years. I am very grateful to him, which is why I'm passing his gift to me on to all of you. As it turns out, discovering that I have a mood disorder has been a relief. Not quite an excuse for all my past disasters, not to mention my general outrageousness, <clears throat> but an explanation. Hey, everybody, I'm weirdly wired. <laughs> Ultimately, though, my well-being is up to me. One shrink actually congratulated me on not being a drug addict or an alcoholic or a prostitute or dead or in jail. Well, not yet anyway. <laughs> sort of a sideways compliment. Wow, lucky me. My husband and my children help me a lot, at least when they're not making me crazier. One big challenge has been accepting that my feelings and my perspectives are not always reliable reflections of reality. I've been encouraged to remember that, for me, things are rarely as catastrophic or as perfect as they might seem at any moment. It's really hard, though, not to be able to trust my own bright, dutifully educated brain and my own spiritually scrutinized and extensively self-helped emotions. I have to remember that the highly distracting emotional and mental stories that sometimes take over my brain might just be my stupid, untrustworthy chemistry doing its thing and not some urgent reality that I must immediately react to or fix or change or run away from or do something about. No, they're just thoughts, just feelings, passing clouds I can let go of, theoretically. As Jerry Kripal writes, I'm learning not to feel guilty about my guilt, not to believe my beliefs, not to think my thoughts, 
Thank you, Reverend Carl and Jeffrey. <clears throat> My own peculiar brain randomly concocts unrealistically optimistic narratives and sometimes self-protectively cynical ones. This wide mood spectrum actually works pretty well for a would-be opinion writer like me. It makes me more empathetic with the wide range of humanity's extremes. So usually, given some time, I can offer a fairly level-headed middle ground of experiential connections and insights arising from my own lifetime struggle to make sense of things, to understand life, despite my confusing shifts in perspective. But I no longer try to understand life. I've concluded that life is a mystery, a terrible, beautiful mystery. I'm steadier now than before. My family and my therapists say so, and I agree. On the bright side, <clears throat> we mood-disordered folk have some really nice qualities in common. Solid research, solid research has shown us to be generally very bright, creative, funny, energetic, and intuitive. And of course, we're great lovers, which at 72 makes me clearly delusional, right? <laughs> Mental illness can be fun. <clears throat> I'll vouch for it. Publicly declaring my official membership in Frederick's diverse mental health community is embarrassing, especially for a perfectionist columnist. But it's not like it's some big secret, especially here. And besides, struggling with mental health issues should never be something to be ashamed of. Because diagnosed or not, labeled or not, helped or not, everyone struggles. Everyone feels shame. We all hide sometimes. But folks, there's no humanity in perfection. And thank goodness we're all saved from perfection. Right, Reverend Carl? Thank you. The day I walked in that door seven years ago felt like home. It still does. I am so grateful to be sharing this weird and wonderful life with my very own supportive, accepting, deeply thoughtful and deeply caring Unitarian Universalist congregation of Frederick.